Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Romans. As you can see on the screen behind me, our preaching theme for 2021 has escaped from being a Sunday night-only phenomenon, and it now makes its debut on the Sunday morning stage, and I'm doing that intentionally today. But we will be in Romans, the 13th chapter, uh, primarily this morning. But I'm actually going to begin in Romans 12. So if you'd be finding Romans chapter 12, let's just get those Bibles out and be ready to work along right here in the text for the duration of our study. It is great to see everybody today. We do have a good number. We've got a lot of folks that are visiting with us. We're so thankful for your presence today here upon the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the very best day of the week. We hope that we are helping you to serve the Lord and to grow closer to the Lord. You're an encouragement to us. And pray this morning that for the next few minutes as we look into the Word of God that we will be instructed and be encouraged, we'll be helped, we'll be emboldened to be the kind of people that God would have us to be. It may be that you have not been here for any of our previous lessons, our chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Romans this year. And so maybe the thought of parachuting in right to the section that we are this evening, just kind of cold, that might sound a little bit daunting to you. But I want you to not fear about that. I don't believe that anybody this morning is going to have any trouble following along at all with the things that we're going to talk about in this section of Romans. This is a critically important and in fact I think a very timely and very relevant section in Romans as we think about our world today. And so let's get that started in Romans the 12th chapter. I'm reading here in verse 1. In Romans 12 and in verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those, of course, are very huge ideas here in Romans chapter 12. The importance of not being conformed to this world. The necessity of being transformed and setting ourselves apart from a world and a society that is very carnally minded, very fleshly minded in their ways. Paul wants the Christians at Rome to understand that they are to be set apart, that they are to be different. However, there is an extreme that folks can go to with that. One possible extreme is to say, you know what? We're going to be so unconformed to this world that what we'll do is we'll just get out of this world. We'll just divorce ourselves from reality. We'll just go flee up to the hills somewhere and we'll get into a secluded monastery and sequester ourselves off from all the rest of society and that way we can be totally unconformed to this world. We'll just divorce ourselves from the world and all of its institutions. Paul comes along in chapter 13 and he says, don't do that. Chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. In this 13th chapter, Paul is going to detail how government is a God-given institution with a God-given work and a God-given role. In fact, Do you remember how Paul ended all those admonitions at the end of chapter 12? He talked about how Christians are not to go about seeking personal vengeance, verses 19, 20, and 21. So somebody maybe reads that and thinks, well, well, what about people who do wrong? 
What about people who commit crimes? What about people who, who, who do things to us that hurt us and cause us pain? Are wrongdoers just allowed to just kind of run rampant in the world? And we as Christians, well, since we can't take vengeance, we're to just lay down and let them just run right over us? Doesn't God care about that? Just let wicked run rampant? Isn't, isn't there going to be anything done? Well, in chapter 13, Paul says, yes, God does care about that. And God is going to do something about that. He does that by putting governing authorities in place to deal with wrongdoing. And as a result... Christians need to understand what their relationship is to that government. In fact, that's part of the transformed life that Paul talked about in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If we're going to be transformed, we need to be transformed in our thinking about how we relate to the civil government. Because the fact of the matter is, Christians Christians ought to be the very best kinds of citizens. And in the 13th chapter, Paul is going to show how the gospel... It produces model citizens. And let's be honest, that is not always easy, is it? That's not always easy for us living in the 21st century where we have a government that passes laws that sanctions things like homosexual marriage and allows for and even funds the murder of unborn children. But I would remind you that as difficult as that is for us today, it was very difficult for people living in the first century as well. The Roman government was pagan to the core. It was thoroughly corrupt. It was immoral through and through. In fact, the Roman government actively persecuted the church in the first century. But I would remind you about that, that at the time that Paul wrote that letter, there was a lot of civil unrest in the world. There was even a lot of civil unrest amongst Christians. There was a lot of rioting that had taken place over things like taxation and how they thought that was unfair and we don't want to be involved in that. And there may have even been some Christians there in the city of Rome who were thinking, you know what? Since we're not going to be part of this world, we're unconformed to the world, well, what we're going to do is, well, we're just not going to pay those taxes. We don't want to have anything to do with this government in this world. We're not going to give our money to an evil bunch of leaders. Paul says, don't do that. Paul says the gospel changes us. It changes how we think about that. It changes how we relate, yes, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the main thrusts in Romans, but that also changes how we relate to our government. And that's the focus of chapter 13. Now, Romans 13, it is arguably the most comprehensive discussion about government uh, anywhere in the New Testament. And that, of course, means that there are lots of questions that are sometimes brought out from this text or maybe kind of shoved into this text as it pertains to our involvement and our interactions with the civil government. And while I do not want to discourage necessarily us asking these questions, I do need to make sure that you and I understand what Paul is not discussing in this chapter. Because if you and I try to lever this passage and try to put into it all of our questions and all of our what-ifs and all of our what-about hypotheticals, then what's going to happen is is we're going to end up missing the main message of Romans 13. And so, for example, you need to know that in Romans 13, Paul doesn't say anything about evil governments. We often ask that. Well, Well, what if the government's evil? I know what Paul's going to say here, but what if the government's evil? What if the government's corrupt? Well, you know what? There are evil governments. They do exist. There's no question about that. Paul understood that evil governments exist. In the 13th chapter, though, Paul is dealing with government in some ways in in the ideal sense. 
if government works fully and completely the way that God wants it to. But that doesn't mean that every government is good. No, some governments are evil. But you need to understand, Paul's not dealing with all the questions that might come from evil governments in this chapter. Furthermore, Paul doesn't say anything in this chapter about about civil disobedience. Do Christians always do everything that the government tells them to do? No, we do not. We know from other passages, even in the New Testament, like Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, that sometimes man's law ends up conflicting with God's law, and in that moment we must say what Peter said. We ought to obey God rather than man. But you need to understand, Paul's not talking about that in this chapter. Why, to do that would end up kind of derailing the conversation. It would end up diluting the force of his main message. In Romans 13, Paul's not dealing with all the exceptions. He's dealing with the rule. Furthermore, you need to know that Paul's not talking about every single tiny civil ordinance that a government has ever made. Now, understand, that right there, that's what we want to talk about. That's immediately where our mind goes. As soon as you start talking about Romans chapter 13, somebody's going to ask, well, well, what if I'm driving through some small town? I'm driving through small town speed trap Kentucky. And I'm driving along and all of a sudden, the speed limit changes from highway speed 55 all the way down to 15 just like that. But the sign, the speed limit sign was hidden behind a bush somewhere and I couldn't see it. And all of a sudden, I'm getting pulled over and I'm getting a ticket for that. Am I in sin? Am I going to hell? That's where we go in our thinking about that. But that's not in Romans 13. Civil governments have all kinds of laws that are arcane and minute, and many people don't even know about those laws. For example, did you know that in the city of Lexington, Kentucky, it is illegal to carry an ice cream cone in your back pocket? It's true. Look it up. It is. Apparently it has something to do with it distracts horses and it causes horses to get stolen and that was the way that people would lure them away. Don't go walking around Lexington with ice cream cone in your pocket. Somebody right now is thinking to themselves, Oh man, what am I going to do last week? I was in Lexington and I had ice cream cones in my pockets. I broke the law. I'm a sinner. I'm going to hell. Paul isn't talking about that. Paul isn't talking about every minor, obscure law known to man. What Paul's doing in this chapter is he's talking in very broad, general terms about being good citizens, and the way that we do that is by being generally submissive to our government. Furthermore, in this connection, it is important to note that Paul does not say anything in this chapter about all kinds of hypothetical scenarios where what if a revolutionary government comes in and overtakes the the present government and then it becomes the new recognized government. That question comes up. I can remember several years ago sitting in a Bible class. It was not here at Lakeside, it was elsewhere. I sat in a Bible class where this very question came up while we were studying Romans 13. And I remember for almost the entire 45 minutes of class, there was all kinds of pontificating about what a Christian could or could not have done during the time of the American Revolutionary War. And there was all kinds of questions about whether a Christian could have served in the Confederacy or whether the Christians could have served on the other side of the Civil War. Paul's not talking about any of that here. There's none of that in Romans 13. I do suppose that at some point in history there has been a rebel government that has uprose and that has become the recognized government. I think that's kind of what happened here. That's what we told England back in 1776. This is what we're doing here. 
But you need to know, that's not under discussion here in Romans chapter 13. And then let me say finally that Paul in this chapter, he's not saying anything here about how God ordains every individual leader. I think sometimes folks try to make that point out of this chapter. Just because someone is a governing official does not necessarily mean that God wanted them there or that God even specifically put them there. There are things that function outside of the providence and even the will of God. I'm thinking, for example, about the activity of Satan. And we do not always know how everything works. We don't know what part of that God is in control of or what part of that some other uh, entity might be in control of. It may be, for example, that God chose Adolf Hitler to be the leader in Nazi Germany back in the early part of the last century. It may be. God may have done that. He may have had a reason for that so that the gospel could advance. I don't know about that. It may be, though, that the devil caused him to be there. And so the devil's will could be done and all the atrocities that happened during the time of Adolf Hitler's reign. I don't know specifically about all those things, but I know this. I know that Romans 13 can't be used to say that God chooses every individual who holds a position of governmental power. It's not in there. What Romans 13 does say is that God ordains government generally. Not any particular form of government. Not even any one governing official. What Romans 13 says is that God approves of law and order in society. Not that God necessarily approves of everything done by a government to have law and order in its society. And So we want to be careful not to bombard the text with all kinds of presuppositions and all kinds of ideas that are outside the scope of what Paul's dealing with in this chapter. Now basically, this chapter divides into two very simple halves. And in the first seven verses of this chapter, what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk about two very basic, fundamental ideas. He's going to talk about what the government is supposed to do, and then he's going to talk about what citizens are supposed to do. Let's read that in the text, verse 1. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. What's the basic message for citizens out of this passage? The basic message is simple. The basic message is submit. You are to submit to the government. The term there for submission or subjection here, it is a word that is regularly found throughout the New Testament. More than 40 times that term is used in the New Testament and it means to rank under. It speaks of a hierarchy, a system of order. It is a term that is used, for example, to describe our submission to God. We submit to God, don't we? We see that as a good thing. We see that as an important thing. All of us submit to the authority of God. In fact, even Jesus, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, even the Son submitted Himself to the Father. It is as well the term that is used to describe wives submitting to their husbands, children submitting to their parents, slaves submitting to their masters, members of a local church submitting to the elders. It means to yield. It means to give way, to respect the authority of those that are over us. And God has vested civil government with that authority. Therefore, verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. 
I want you to notice three times that word resist is used in that passage. And it is the idea of resisting something that is of superior strength. Something that it does no good whatsoever to try and resist. It's a futile effort. It is fruitless. You're not going to win. It's a waste of your time and your energy. And why? Why is it futile to resist? Because God put the government there. God instituted that. Which is why Paul goes on to say, in fact doesn't hesitate to say there in verse 2, that the person who attempts to resist and to rebel against that authority is going to incur judgment. We maybe would ask, well, well whose judgment? I think verse 3 answers that. Verse 3, For rulers, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you do bad things, if you violate civil law, if you try to resist civil government and their authority, then you incur the judgment of civil rulers. Because this is ultimately the role of government. We talk about what's the government's job. The government's job is to protect the good and to punish evil. That's what Paul says in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive His approval. You know, most of us, actually hopefully all of us, are sitting here this morning without the slightest hint of concern or worry that the government, that the police, or anybody else in that position of authority is going to come in here and put us in handcuffs and drag us off to jail because we've been charged with murder. Why are we not worrying about that this morning? Hopefully we're not worrying about that this morning because we're not committing murder. None of us have killed anyone. We haven't been involved in that activity. We're not afraid of that happening to us. And the point of all of this that Paul says is that government functions to encourage good conduct and at the same time to punish bad conduct. In fact, government has the right to punish bad conduct in the very most severe way possible if necessary. Verse 4, verse four. for He, the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain. I think that passage settles very clearly that government has been given the authority to execute wrongdoers and to administer capital punishment if necessary. Now I understand whenever you talk about capital punishment, there's all kinds of complexities with that. And I understand, this is usually the first thing that folks bring up, I understand that sometimes there are people who are convicted and they're actually not guilty. I understand that. And and listen, nobody is for putting to death innocent people. I don't know of anybody that's in favor of that. But if the question is asked generally, does the government have the right to execute criminals who are guilty of crimes worthy of death, the answer to that is, yes they are. Absolutely they are. In fact, I would suggest to you, they have a responsibility to do that. Verse 4 continues on, For He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Do you see that expression there about God's wrath? Would you notice how that connects back to what Paul said back in chapter 12, verse 19? Chapter 12, verse 19, Paul said there, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How does God deal with evildoers? How does God extract vengeance? How does God administer His wrath on those who do wrong? Paul says in chapter 13, verse 4, that one of the ways God does that is through civil government. Civil government serves as His avenger on wrongdoers. And what that means is, is that means for you and I, that means there is no place ever for vigilante justice. I realize that Batman and some of the other comic book superhero movies have have really kind of popularized this idea of just kind of taking justice into your own hands. You don't need the police. You can just kind of do it on your own. But God has ordained that civil government is the one who is to administer that punishment. What you and I need to do then, verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Notice again, Paul restates, our job is to submit. I want you to remember what I said in the very first lesson in this series this year. There was a lot of rioting that was going on in Rome just a few years prior, and it had caused all the Jews to be ousted from Rome. Notice how Paul is telling these Christians who have come back now. They've come back to Rome. Claudius' edict is up. Claudius is no longer on the throne. But now they've come back to Rome. Claudius says, Christian... Your job, the church's job, is to build up your reputation in Rome as being people who are generally submissive to the government. You are people of good conduct. You are going to be model citizens. If you were to look around and survey the world at that time, who's the very best citizens in the world? They ought to be able to look at the church in Rome and see the Christians there and say, yep, those folks, those folks are the best citizens. And furthermore, not only are they the people who submit... But they also are the people who pay their taxes. That's verse 6. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Why do we support the government with our money? Well, because of what Paul just got done saying in the previous verses. Because government, hopefully, is crushing evildoers and they are protecting good. Now that's certainly not to say that the government does that perfectly and effectively every single time. But in the main, that is what God has given them to do. They are God's ministers and God says for that reason, you're obligated to pay your taxes. Verse 7, I would have you notice, there's actually a very unique construction in the wording of this verse and I think the ESV well captures it. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Why do we do this? Why do we do all of this? As Christian citizens, we do this because it's our obligation. It's what we owe. And it doesn't matter whether we like this or not. It doesn't matter whether we agree with that or not. It doesn't matter whether we particularly care for our government or not. It doesn't matter. Our job is to submit to them, to pay our taxes. And notice as well from verse 7 that we as well are to honor and to respect our governing officials. Now you just stop and think about how those are some simple ideas, but think about how those ideas, they transform our thinking about the government. And they need to transform our thinking. Because all too often, I'm afraid, we get pressed to the mold. We get conformed to the world's way of thinking about the government. Somebody says, oh, come on, Josh, I I don't think the way the world does. I mean, come on, I... I submit, I obey the law, 
I pay my taxes. I'm a, I'm a good citizen. Okay, that's good. Can I ask you? What is your attitude toward our current president? Maybe if you're of the other persuasion politically, what was your attitude of our previous president? What kind of things do you say? What kind of things do you post? What kinds of things do you share about our elected officials? I realize that there are many things about our leaders that to us as Christians we find ungodly or we find distasteful. There are policies that are implemented that we disagree with. Maybe we disagree with those because of moral, biblical reasons. Maybe we just disagree with them because of political reasons. And that's true certainly at the highest level. That's true at the federal level. That's true at the state level. That's even true all the way down on the local level. Those leaders are oftentimes going to do things that we do not like. But I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to Paul. That does not give us the license to say slanderous, ugly, disrespectful, dishonorable things about the president, about the governor, about the mayor, or anybody else who may hold those positions of power in Washington or Frankfurt or down at City Hall. Our role as Christians, verse 7, is to pay what is owed. And that includes we pay respect and honor to those who serve in those capacities. And if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, Josh, I'll tell you this. When Paul wrote Romans, he didn't know that so-and-so, fill in the blank, was going to be the president. Paul didn't know that fill in the blank, such and such law was going to be passed. Paul didn't know that this or that was going to happen in Congress. And that's probably true. Paul did not know all of that. But I will remind you that just a few short years after writing this letter, Paul was going to find himself sitting in a Roman prison cell waiting to have his head lopped off. And to the young evangelist Timothy, he told him, pray for your leaders. God expects Christians to be model citizens. And I'm telling you this morning, we are not model citizens if we do not submit to our government, if we do not pay our taxes, and furthermore, probably most pointedly for us, if we do not give the respect to those who have the rule over us. One writer said this. He said, No good will come to the cause of the gospel when the followers of Christ are regarded as crazy dissidents because they will not cooperate with the most basic social mechanisms. He went on to say, if Jesus is the true Lord of the world, and He is, then His followers should not go picking unnecessary quarrels with the lesser lords. A to the men. In fact, let me read that again. If Jesus is the true Lord then His followers should not pick unnecessary quarrels with the lesser lords. Our government, the governing officials, they are lesser lords. But you know what? Because I submit and honor the Lord, then I likewise will submit and honor those lesser lords because that's what the Lord said to do. Which then leads to the second half of this chapter which really just continues on with this idea of the transformed life. I do think in some ways that chapter 13 verses 1 through 7 is maybe kind of a, a parenthesis 
Paul's maybe kind of going on kind of a slight little detour here, kind of a short little excursion to say some things about the government because, again, we do have to live in this world and he wants us to understand how we're supposed to live in a transformed way. But I do think that beginning in verse 8, Paul's going to resume the train of thought that he started back in chapter 12, verse 9. Would you notice back in chapter 12, verse 9? Paul begins that big section there by talking about love. He says, let love be genuine. He then enumerates a number of things about how Christians are to live in harmony. I think Paul's picking up that discussion now, which is going to end up setting the stage for chapters 14 and 15. And so he says, beginning in verse 8, begin with me in verse 8, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I want to be very clear here. I don't think that Paul is suggesting here that it's wrong for Christians to to ever take out a loan to have a student loan or to get a credit card, maybe to charge something to that credit card. I don't think that's what he's saying here. Paul's simply just making a play on words here to say that there is a debt that we all owe. In fact, it's a debt that we can never fully repay, and that is the debt of love. And he says those are some things that we do owe. In fact, back in verse 7, he got done telling us, yeah, you do have stuff that you owe. You owe people taxes. You owe people honor and respect. And now he says you owe people love. I like how the NIV renders verse 8. It says those debts, we don't want to have debts that remain outstanding. I think that's the idea here. True obedience to the command of love means that we're always going to try to treat people right. We're always going to try to do right by others. We're always going to be fair in our dealings. And the fact is, you can't do any of that stuff if you're always stiffing people and always causing headaches for folks when they try to help you out. In fact, notice how Paul says that whenever we love people, verse 8, he says that actually ends up fulfilling the law. What does Paul mean by that? How is it that we fulfill the law when we love others? Well, Paul says, well, just pick any law, verse 9, whether that's you shall not commit adultery, or you shall not murder, or you shall not steal, or you shall not covet, or any other commandment. They're all summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If I really love my neighbor, then I'm not going to steal his wife. If I really love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal his stuff. If I really love my neighbor, I'm not going to try to kill him and take his life. Love is what fills up all of God's commands. It fills them up with the very best motives, the very best intentions, and the very best conduct and actions. Which leads to verse 10 where Paul says there, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, Paul is pushing this fundamental idea. Notice it's found there about five different times in those verses. He's pushing just this fundamental concept of loving others which is something that he really has not talked about at all until he got to chapter 12. Talked about the love of God, talked about the love of Christ. But in chapter 12 and 13, now he's now talking about our love for others. He says that that is one of the hallmarks of living a transformed life. You think about it. That makes us very different from the rest of this world when we have love for others. Because most people in the world, they're only concerned about who? themselves. Me, myself, and I. If it feels good, I'm going to do it regardless of how that might affect you. If I want your stuff and I think that I can get away with it, I'll just take your stuff. If I think your wife is pretty and I think that I could have her, you know what? I'll take her too. 
If I don't like you and I'd like to just be shed of you, I'll take your life while I'm at it. I don't care about you. Paul says, for Christians, absolutely not. We're not conformed to the world's way of thinking. Kingdom citizens, we are different. We're the best kind of citizens. We're the best kind of neighbors. And that's going to be evident in the fact that we have regard and care and love for other people. Which then leads to this final and last little paragraph in verses 11, 12, 13, and 14. Now, before we read these verses, I want to just offer this to you for your consideration. In just a second, Paul's going to come to what I believe is the whole point of this epistle. I believe that Romans chapter 14 is the peak of the entire letter. This book is all about unity because the church at Rome was having some serious quarrels. And in chapter 14, after Paul's laid all of this groundwork, 13 chapters of groundwork, he's then going to get down to brass tacks. And so now he has kind of this this last little admonition. What's the last thing that I need to say to these Christians before we come to the thing that I've been building up for 13 chapters now? And that last little admonition, I believe, is all about those people in Rome understanding what time it is. And time is just found all throughout these verses. Verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. When Paul talks here about time, He's not telling the Roman brethren to look down at the sundial on their wrist. No, he's talking to them about understanding where they are, historically, where they are in God's great plan. And where are they? Well, they're in the last dispensation. In fact, it's the very same dispensation that you and I are living in. What's the only thing left to occur? The return of Jesus. Final judgment. And we're living in that time. We are living in the Christian age. Sin has been taken care of and defeated at the cross. Paul says that the dawn is breaking. Righteousness has triumphed over evil. But right now, well, well, it's not fully light yet. It's not fully daytime yet. Jesus has not yet returned. We're still living kind of here in the last throes of the darkness. And so most people in the world, since we still have some of that darkness, most people in the world are doing what? They're living it up in the darkness. They're enjoying sin. They're carrying on like they've just got all the time in the world. But Paul says, Christian, you're different. Don't be conformed to the way the world thinks about that. You know what time it is. You know what time it is better than anybody else does. And it is time to wake up. It is time to wake up and get serious about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So often in the Bible, the term for sleep, it's used to represent maybe a state of unpreparedness. I'm thinking about five virgins who fell asleep and they missed the coming of the bridegroom. Sometimes sleep is used to indicate someone who is being spiritually lethargic, someone who's being apathetic. I'm thinking about the church at Sardis and they were told to wake up in Revelation chapter 3. I should say, I don't think that Paul is urging the Romans here to wake up because he thinks that Jesus is going to return in like the next five minutes. That's not why he's telling them to wake up. In fact, what Paul's doing in these verses, he's telling them about how to live. 
How are you supposed to live in the world? How are you supposed to live while you're still here on this earth? How do you need to live because the conditions of your time dictate that you need to live wisely? You need to be aware of what's going on. You need to pay attention to the sin and the darkness that still pervades our world. And so he says in verse 13, in verse 13 he says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. There's six sins that are specifically mentioned here. And notice how they're all paired off in three pairs. Orgies and drunkenness denotes the idea of a drunken frolic. Sexual immorality and sensuality refers to unrestrained promiscuity. Quarreling and jealousy pertain to a spirit and an attitude of strife and division. In fact, I think Paul intentionally set that last pair off to the very end because of what he's then going to start talking to him about beginning in chapter 14. But what Paul says here is he says, we're going to cast those things off. We're casting off the works of darkness. It's the idea of we're taking off dirty clothes. We're taking this dirty change of clothes and we're throwing them off. And instead we're going to put on a new pair of clothes. Verse 14 now, but put on, be clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Daylight living means putting on the character of Jesus Christ. Literally, the term there means to assume the person of. We're going to assume the person of Christ. Where we are becoming like Jesus more and more each day. That is is the very essence of being transformed, is it not? What are we trying to be transformed into? We're trying to be transformed into the image of God's perfect Son. And what God's people know is they know that the time to do that is now. As we live as citizens here in an earthly kingdom, but we're living in a certain kind of way in anticipation of going and living one day in that heavenly kingdom. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know where that all begins? That putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know where all that starts? It all starts right back here. It starts in the waters of baptism. Paul would say in another passage that when you are baptized into Christ, you're doing what? You are putting on Christ. You're putting on that fresh pair of clothes. Is there someone here this morning who has yet to take that critical step? Put Jesus on in baptism so that you can become a Christian. If you've not done that yet and you're ready to do that, you need to know that all things have been made easy and convenient for you this day so that you can indeed become a Christian. That is where spiritual transformation all begins. It has to start right there. But it is a continual process. It doesn't end in the waters of baptism. We continue each day to be transformed. We learn to cast off the works of darkness. We learn each day to demonstrate our love for others and more and more each day, hopefully, we're striving to be model citizens in the world in which we live. And that's not always easy. In fact, there are occasions where we stumble and we fail in that. But by God's grace, we have the opportunity to come to Him for forgiveness and for cleansing once again. It may be, brother or sister, that that describes you this morning. You need to come back to the Lord. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you so that you and I, all of us together, we can serve Jesus And we can be with Him in heaven someday. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to make that known. Do that by coming to the front. Do that while we stand and while we sing.